Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over the age of 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents or other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor, specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a special guest. I've invited elder law and estate planning attorney Mark Gilfix, JD, who is a partner with the Bay Area law firm Gilfix and LaPole. And I've asked him to join me today to discuss some common legal issues that can come up for older adults and their families. And in particular, we're going to be discussing some elder law issues that come up when families become concerned about an aging parent and are trying to figure out how to help, especially if they've become concerned about an older person's memory or thinking. As you may know, earlier this year, I launched a special online Helping Older Parents membership program which is for those who become worried about an aging parent and are trying to figure out the better ways to be helpful while still being respectful of what their older parent values and wants for himself or herself. And what I've noticed over these past several months in providing this ongoing guidance and support to our members is that our members have been bringing up quite a lot of questions related to elder law and also about how to get better help from attorneys. Now, in our program, our members get access not only to me, but also to our geriatric care managers. So those are professionals who have lots of experience in coordinating with elder law attorneys because they help families solve all kinds of problems and issues uh, related to an older person's health and well-being. So they do have experience with elder law attorneys and with the legal system, and we have been able to provide useful guidance to our members. But since I know that these kinds of questions and dilemmas are very common, and also I'm always trying to learn more for myself, I decided to invite an experienced elder law attorney to join me on the podcast to help us all learn more about how we can help older adults and how we can avoid some of these common pitfalls that I see coming up related to legal concerns. So, Gilfix and LaPole is a very well-known California law firm specializing in elder law and in estate law. And in fact, they were one of the first firms in the United States to focus on this area of law and they have over 35 years of experience. So I'm really delighted that attorney Mark Gilfix is able to join me today to talk with me about some of these important elder law issues that families are struggling with. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So before I go into some of the questions and dilemmas that our members have been bringing up in our online community, I would love to start with you telling us more about Gilfix and LaPole, because I thought it was such a fascinating story when uh, I heard about it, and it's actually a family story. So I, I would love for you to talk more about the firm and also how you came to become involved in this aspect of the law. Yeah, so it really is a family story. And it starts in the early 70s when both my parents, Michael Gilfix and Myra Gerson Gilfix, were students at the Stanford Law School. And um, my father in particular really was passionate about just changing the world. He didn't know what he wanted to do after law school. He knew he wanted to, to give back and help people. So when he graduated the Stanford Law School in 1973, he just looked for an area that was underserved by the legal field. And he found that the, the elderly, older Americans were not getting proper representation. They weren't getting the right kind of help. So he really, in essence, helped to create the field of elder law. And he created America's very first free legal aid program for the elderly in 1973 called SALA, Senior Adults Legal Assistance. It still exists today. Um, not only did he start SALA, but he proselytized. He went around the country and trained other idealistic young attorneys to start their own free legal aid programs. Um, he ran this nonprofit for about 10 years and went around the country leading the charge to really create this whole new field and to create this whole area of legal services for older Americans. Uh, my mom was deeply involved in this as well. So, so they really created this field and we, we kind of know that he created this because he actually owned the trademark for the term elder law. 
he created it. He, ended, he eventually donated it to one of the many nonprofits he started. He started the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys, among other national organizations. But um, he helped you know, thousands and thousands of families and older, older Americans through this process. Um, in 1982, uh, he had me and my first of my two younger sisters and realized he had to actually make a living that running a nonprofit <laughs> in the Bay Area, even back then, wasn't going to pay for a family. Mm-hmm. So he did transition into private practice and started what is now Gilfix and the Pole Associates. So I grew up in the office, helping out, meeting client friends. We'd walk around, it's in, we're in Palo Alto. We'd walk around the city and half the time we were out, someone would go up to him and, and say hello to my mom and my dad and say, oh, how's it going? And then I would have no idea who they were. He'd say, oh, that's a client. And that happened all the time. You know, I feel like we've worked with half the families in Palo Alto, but I think more powerfully, he's helped thousands of people around the country. So I was around this and um, I, was, I was lucky enough to attend Stanford. I didn't go very far for undergrad. Um, I went into the business world as a management consultant. I actually became a professional actor for a while. And I wasn't really super passionate about either path in the big picture. And I stayed in touch with my parents and we'd always had talked about kind of working together and what we could do with this incredible platform we have and this incredible, uh, the incredible relationships we have in the community. And so I decided, you know what, I want to actually, I want to work in the family business and, and carry on this legacy. I saw so much good that we were doing and I saw the positivity that he had in his life and how he lived his life and how happy he was with things and helping people out. So I decided to follow that path. And so I went back to law school and, and joined Gilfix and the Pole Associates in 2013. So for the last six, six plus years, I have been in this field focused exclusively on elder law and estate planning and related issues. Oh, that's such a wonderful uh, story. And it warms my heart, too, because it just sounds, you know, kind of analogous to the start of of geriatrics, right? That it also in healthcare, you know, older adults were kind of overlooked as a, a, and it was often not, not clear to health providers that they had needs that weren't being met, right? Yes. And so it's wonderful that your father noticed that. So maybe you can talk to, for us for a little bit about what, what is elder law? And also like, what were the needs that your father saw that weren't being met by the existing legal system. So what is elder law and, and how does it overlap or differentiate from estates and trust law? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And I may have a different answer from what other people would say, but my view is when we talk about estate planning, that usually talks more about the financial side of things, estate taxes, gift taxes, capital gains taxes, and creating long-term trusts to protect assets over time. You know, there's, they, they certainly overlap, by the way. Uh, elder law to me at least, goes much more towards making sure that an older individual's rights are protected, that they have a great set of resources around them, that they're getting great long-term care, and really that their rights are being defended and, and that they have advocates on their side working with their families, not against their family, ideally working with their families, just to create an optimal situation around them. And so it's a little bit less financially and tax oriented, it's much more, I think, about caring for the individual and making sure their rights are represented. And I think when my father and my mother entered this field, they saw there really weren't any, or there were very few entities or organizations that were helping older Americans to make sure their rights were respected. You know, and it it can, and I think where they overlap is you talk about um, elder, financial elder abuse, um, or other types of abuse, you know, certainly that's where if there's assets involved, you know, a state, a state law and elder law absolutely overlap. We do a lot of work with families who are dealing with uh, a parent or a grandparent who has dementia issues or, or very serious health issues. And right. we're going to talk about that in a second, but how do you navigate that world and respect the rights of the older individual while making sure that great decisions are made on their behalf. And, and there can be a conflict there sometimes because yeah. it's, it's not an easy area to navigate. And sort of figuring out like when and how to step in if it becomes necessary. Yeah. I mean, I, I find that people often, you know, when I sort of ask them about legal planning, they talk about their will and their estates. And I feel like, well, that's important. And that's for what happens after you die. Mm-hmm. And that there's this whole area of, of planning for, for before, you know, for this stage when one might need some help or might have some vulnerabilities or might potentially need a lot of help. 
Absolutely. And that's one of the main points that I always try to make. I do, I do a lot of speaking. I love spreading the word, you know, whether it's seminars, I thank you again for having me here because I love reaching new new communities. Uh, but this estate planning and elder law, absolutely, it's about while you're around. You know, it, it's great to think about the future and leaving assets to your kids and grandkids and great grandkids and protecting your assets from taxes. But what about you? We want to make sure that you are covered. We want to make sure that people who you trust and who care about you are empowered to help you if you have those people in your life. And if not, we got to do the very best we can to make sure you have that great support system around you and that people or entities are legally empowered to help as needed when you need when you need that intervention or that help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned also like that you might need your finances or assets to take care of you. And I guess that's another aspect that comes up is, is uh, managing any available assets or understanding what one's options are for, for paying for care. Yes. And that's, and there's so many misconceptions about that. I think a lot of people assume that Medicare, which is what we all get as we get older, will pay for, for long-term care. And that is not true. Right. So a lot of people have a rude awakening and they say, whoa, wait a second. I have to pay for, for assisted living. I have to pay for, for nursing home care. It's not actually quite, there actually are some programs out there, Medicaid, or as we call it in California, Medi-Cal, absolutely can help to pay for nursing home care. And there are absolutely ways we can protect the family house and a lot of other assets, but you need help there. So that's, that's also another area where I think elder law and estate planning kind of overlap, where we're working with families to just navigate what government benefits are out there, how can you qualify for them, and how can we protect those assets you worked your whole life for in the process. And we can, we can do amazing things if families come to us a little bit ahead of time, mm -hmm. uh, but, but there is so much ignorance out there. And that's also where your estate planning documents are critical. And we're not talking about what happens after you're gone, but your documents matter while you're alive, especially if there are capacity issues or if you have trouble making decisions. Right, right. Well, that's a, this is a great jumping off point for transitioning to some of the, the dilemmas that have been coming up for our members. Now, of course, most older adults, even people who are in their late 80s, uh, are not experiencing problems with memory or thinking. But for our members, you know, people who are feeling very stuck trying to help an aging parent, often that older parent is experiencing some memory or thinking problems. You know, that is part of why things are happening that the family feels is very unsafe and also often part of why the older person is refusing certain changes or assistance that the family thinks that they should consider. So uh, when it comes to our members, we do have a lot of them who are worried about that parent's memory and thinking and are trying to figure out how to, you know, quote unquote, get involved or, or intervene. So that brings up what, what you mentioned a little moment ago, which is, you know, are there documents allowing people to step in and help out? And one of those documents that our members have asked us about, and we've talked about it on the podcast, actually, is the durable power of attorney. The, the, the general durable power of attorney, and then there's also one specifically for healthcare. We did talk about them in episode 91, but just in case we have people who haven't heard that yet, can you start by recapping for people, like, what is this document and how can it be used to help older people who might be developing memory or thinking problems? Yeah, durable power of attorney is often the most important document you will ever create. And I'll go into why that is in just a moment. As part, just yeah, a quick recap, the three documents that virtually everyone should really have a revocable living trust, durable power of attorney for finances, and an advanced healthcare directive, or otherwise known as a durable power of attorney for healthcare. While you're alive, your, your living trust, or another form of that would be a will, uh, it doesn't really have much of a role to play, although it can for your finances, you name a backup trustee. But when we're talking about long-term care issues and the issues that you, know, you navigate in your community where you're dealing with long-term care or dementia issues or memory, the power of attorney is, as I mentioned, the most important document. The power of attorney governs your day-to-day financial decisions and your day-to-day -day business of life issues. So if you have incapacity issues and you can't manage your own affairs or if whether you recognize that or not and we'll talk about when they can come into play the power of attorney is what empowers the people you name to take steps to deal with government benefit issues and to protect your assets or to to move them around in a way that allows you to get um, medical or medicaid benefits to pay for long-term care uh, so the power of attorney for finances is absolutely critical. And a point I always make, and 
is that a lot of people either don't think they're important or they'll download a simple form online. And, it, and there are a lot of standard forms that are fine for dealing with basic bill paying, you know, covering your utility payments, managing your real estate and things like that. But they don't address long-term care issues. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you are facing dementia issues, you can't make decisions or you, you're not capable of making complex financial decisions, you need someone to help you. And what if you might need to go to a nursing home or you might need expensive levels of care and you're not quite eligible for Medi-Cal and you need to deal with these government benefit programs. Well, if your power of attorney document doesn't specifically address Medi-Cal or Medicaid planning and asset protection techniques, while you, at least you're empowering someone to step in and deal with that on a basic level, they can't take a lot of the steps that they need to take, again, to make sure the family house is protected, to protect whatever savings you might have left, and to allow you to, to attain Medi-Cal eligibility. Um, unless they have to go, they would have to go to court to do that. But if you work with an experienced elder law attorney who deals with this, you know, we always make sure that if the client's okay with this, when they set up the power of attorney and they have to have capacity when they set it up, but if they're okay with it, we need to make sure that there are, there is language in that document that it specifically addresses these issues. It says, Hey, if I need nursing home care down the road, then if I can't make decisions for myself, I authorize you to work with an expert to create whatever entities or, or structures we need to create, to, again, protect my single family home, to transfer assets within my family, perhaps to help me become eligible for Medi-Cal before I'm completely broke, because there are ways to do that. So the power of attorney document is often the most important document. When someone comes to see us, when they're facing a crisis, usually the first document we'll look at is the power of attorney. Right, right. And many of our members have concerns about memory and thinking problems, but I always like to remind people that there are other reasons why an older adult can be unable to manage their finances or affairs, just a sudden illness, right? Absolutely. Being hospitalized and being very sick for a while, or sometimes it's something sudden uh, like a stroke and it can, you know, it can be a temporary situation where people might eventually recover or it might not be. And, you know, we have seen certainly heartbreaking stories of, of uh, older adults who get sick in the hospital and their, then their families come and say, oh my gosh, we, we're not able to pay the bills. You know, can you give us an authorization to pay the bills? And as physicians, we have to say, well, well no, <laughs> you know, right. if you don't have a viable, durable power of attorney, you're going to have to usually petition the court system to be able to help out with those, those financial things. So, so I think that's another uh, thing that people sometimes don't, uh, don't realize. Now, I know that um, durable power of attorneys, you know, at least here in California, and I think in many states often come in kind of two flavors. One of them gives somebody else the power to transact your business, basically, right, mm -hmm. on your behalf uh, right away. So you might be there and you might be perfectly able and you might still want to give your adult child the power to, to uh, do certain transactions or manage certain things on your behalf, uh, maybe because you're traveling or just to have another person able to do it. And then we also have power of, uh, powers of attorneys that are springing, right, where the agent is allowed to act if the person who completed the document has been incapacitated. Can you um, talk a little bit more about this like question of like, how do we know when an older person has become incapacitated and so their, you know, their agent, whoever is named, should be allowed to do things? And that is a very tough issue. And I think you hit on a, a really critical point that a lot of people will just say, you know what, I, I'm okay with giving my spouse or my eldest daughter power of attorney right now. It's okay for them to sign documents and to, and to transact business affair, my business affairs for me. Um, and you can always revoke it. So as long as you have capacity, you can always take back that power. So that gives people comfort. A lot of the times we'll work with clients where they'll give their spouse immediate power of attorney, but if their spouse can't serve, then for anybody else, there has to be this springing power. You have to show incapacity. Now, when does incapacity come up? That is a very tricky situation. Different documents uh, will define it a different way. Usually what we say, we have a version of language that goes something like, if my primary care physician or two physicians who are work independently declare that I am unable to you know, manage my financial affairs, and there's specific language that we have, I don't know it off the top of my head, but if doctors say that in my, my judgment as a physician, this is more your world than mine, uh, this individual um, is incapable of, of properly managing their affairs, 
then this power springs into existence. And what we need is a, is a written declaration from a doctor, or maybe it's two doctors, depending on what the document requires. You bring that to the bank with the power of attorney, and you, you give that to the bank, and in theory, that should be enough to allow that power to become active. But there is it's a huge gray area, and I'm sure that you see this in your, in your practice, Leslie, and, and with your colleagues, that you can have capacity one day and not have it the next day. Um, you know, if someone has, we've seen this all the time, if someone has some form of dementia, they might have a couple hours a day where they are bright and they're on it and they understand everything that's happening. And then they'll have a time of day where they don't. And so I think a lot of physicians are very concerned about that. They're very hesitant to declare that someone doesn't have capacity because it's a pretty big deal to say that. And they're worried that it's going to get challenged later. Uh, there's some cases where it's clear, you know, if someone's just really in bad shape and they just clearly, they don't, they don't know what's going on and they're not, they're not going to get better, but there is a huge gray area and there's no easy answer for this. And sometimes, frankly, one doctor might say, this person doesn't have capacity. Another doctor might look at the same person and say, no, actually I think they do. And I know there are formal tests that doctors can give and there are specialists who, who really focus on this, but you, usually there's not a big fight over this, but when there is, it can be a big challenge. But the document usually will declare what de will determine what you need to do. And, and yeah, you need a you need a written declaration from from a physician or a specialist. Right, right. Yeah, I looked up the California code. <laughs> of course, that is no substitute for consulting with a qualified attorney. So everybody listening should keep in mind. But you know, it was interesting for me to see, you know, the the California code on powers of attorney that it that it basically says that the document gets to state what are the criteria for incapacity. So it seemed to me that at least in California, the state has not been very specific no. about it. <laughs> and so it's really about how the document is drafted. And then I have certainly seen a lot of variation in how these are drafted. So I think that's something that uh, that's important to consider. And so, you know, for our members, uh, when they're asking, how can I intervene? we're often telling them, well, what exactly does the document say? <laughs> because yeah. that is probably what you are going to have to, uh, to go with. Now, maybe we can briefly review for the audience, like what we mean by capacity or incapacity. And then people often confuse it with, you know, competence and whether yes. the person has been declared competent or incompetent by a court. Can you clarify that for us? Yeah, I think uh, the way that I think about it is, Capacity is more your ability to, to understand your financial affairs and who's involved and what's going on with your, again, with, with the business of life issues that we all have to deal with. Competence is different. Competence, I think, is a much higher burden. You know, you can absolutely be competent, but not have capacity to deal with all your financial issues. Um, as we get older, we have clients who have no dementia issues or anything, and they just don't want to deal with their finances anymore. You know, they maybe one spouse passes away and the other spouse wasn't involved in finances and they just are overwhelmed. They don't know how their investments work and they don't want to deal with it. So they technically, they absolutely are competent. They're intelligent, but they don't personally feel like they have the capacity to deal with their financial issues. Now, that's that's a different from determining if they have legal capacity. Yeah. But my point is- They're making a choice there. <laughs> they're making a choice there. A choice they understand, which, you know, is part of how I think about uh, capacity is it's really like, is the person able to understand the choice yeah. at issue and the ramifications of the different choices? It's a good way of putting it. And, and it's also, when you look at the actual legal definitions of capacity, they're very circular definitions. It's like, you can't really take much from it because it's such a specific situation to each individual. You know, the law can't say, well, I mean, the generic thing that we look for is in the law is, does the person understand if when they're creating a trust or other documents, do they understand roughly what they have and do they recognize the people they're naming? It's like, do you, do you understand basically how much you have in the bank, what you own, and do you recognize the people that you're leaving assets to? It's a pretty low bar, frankly. So capacity, I think it goes to, you absolutely cannot have capacity to manage your day-to-day your -day business affairs, absolutely can still be competent at the same time. But it's a gray area and it's dicey. And this is where families that communicate and coordinate and plan ahead a little bit are in a much better position. The more families can work together, ideally with, a, with an expert, uh, like an elder law attorney and a, a good medical care team, they're in much better shape because it, there's no clear definition for this stuff. The American Bar Association, and uh, they collaborated with the American Psychological Association to do some 
capacity handbooks for clinicians and attorneys. And a while back when I looked, those were the best resources I found, but they're quite long and technical. They're not designed for the public, but I still might put a, a link to those in the show notes. But you were mentioning earlier that for a person to, to sign their durable power of attorney or to do other things with their, their attorney, like set up the trust, that you know they can do it if they have capacity. And so this is something that I've often wondered about because many of our, our members are concerned that their parents are going to the attorney, this parent who's been forgetful and doing worrisome things, you know, where, uh, where it often sounds to me like there, there's good reason to be concerned about the memory and thinking. You know, people are, are concerned about this parent going to the attorney and attempting to make changes, possibly because of the influence of someone else, which, which makes me wonder, like, how likely are attorneys to notice if an older person is actually sliding or has lost capacity? To what extent are they checking? So we have a duty to check capacity when we meet with people, but it's a challenge. And if an attorney doesn't have context, it's very easy for one attorney to say, you know, I don't think this person has capacity. And another attorney can make the exact opposite determination. And, and actually, this goes back to when I was talking about our, my family history in this area. And my, my parents fought to establish greater rights for older Americans to preserve their ability to make decisions. And my dad actually talks pretty openly now that maybe we went a little bit too far. Now you don't wanna take away someone's ability to make decisions, but the law is very protective of, of our ability to make decisions, even if it looks like those decisions might not be the best. As, as my father says, you can't, you can't stop someone from making stupid decisions. If they have capacity to make bad, you know, we can all make bad decisions. So for, as an attorney, we obviously have to make sure that people are giving consistent answers through a meeting, that they seem coherent. If a child brings them in, we got to meet with them one-on-one. -on -one. Some attorneys don't even like to meet with somebody unless they, their child doesn't even bring them to the office. Although logistically, how do you do it otherwise? That, that's another gray area. But I, I can just tell a very quick story. I had one, uh, one client came in, her daughter brought her in. Um, she had some state early stage dementia. She was open about that. Her daughter said that she did. Um, she said, you know, I don't trust my sons anymore. I have two sons and a daughter. My daughter's involved. I want her to help me out. I want to update my documents and name her as my trustee, as my attorney, in fact, and my power of attorney document. I met with her one-on-one. -on -one. I, I grilled her. I said, are you sure that you really feel this way? You know, is she, is she pressuring you? Like, oh, no, I'm not getting pressured at all. I feel great about my daughter. Don't trust my sons anymore. I think they're up to no good. Okay. So we say that she was very clear. She was consistent. We prepare some documents. Two weeks later, she comes in, but this time not with her daughter, with the two sons. The two sons in the previous meeting, she said, were no good. I met with her again, one-on-one. -on -one. We go over things. She said the exact opposite. I don't trust my daughter. She's up to no good. My sons are the ones who are looking out for me. Oh my. And then what, and I said, but you know, just so you know, two weeks ago, you said that you didn't trust your, your sons. You want your daughter involved. And she said, oh, I, well, if I said that I was wrong, she was manipulating. At that point, I, we had to withdraw as her attorney because we saw the conflict. We saw that she was changing her mind, didn't even remember that she had changed her mind, but she presented very well. What my bet is they went to another attorney. That attorney met with her, whoever they, she came with, whether it was her sons or her daughter, if she met with that, if that attorney could have done everything right and could have determined that she absolutely had capacity because they, if you met with her one-on-one, -on -one, she was clear, she was consistent, she gave the right answers. And, you know, we're not mind readers. We, we don't know everyone's history. So I had to withdraw because I saw the conflict, but another attorney wouldn't have seen the conflict unless the daughter came to them too. And it's also dicey as an attorney, we're not always allowed to listen to the kids. If the parent is our client, the parent is the person we talk to. We're not in some situations if the parent doesn't want us to talk to another kid, we're not allowed to. So my point is, there's no clean, easy way to determine this. The key is working with someone who's experienced. Because we, as, as a firm that specializes in this, we see the warning signs. We've been involved in court battles. We know what to look for. We know how to defend our clients' rights if it comes to a conflict. But it's, it's, I wish it was easier, but it's a, it's a gray area. Right, right. Well, I think you've brought up so many important points. I mean, first of all, I think it's so important to highlight to everyone that even if someone has a dementia diagnosis, that does not automatically mean that they have lost the capacity to make certain decisions, you know, to complete legal documents, Absolutely. To, to drive. Now, certainly by the time they get to moderate or after, 
they will have lost that capacity because there's just too much uh, loss of mental functioning. But in the early mild stage, uh, some people do have the capacity. And it's really important that we allow them to make those decisions because you're right. Sometimes we've gone too far in the moment someone has a diagnosis, you know, assuming they aren't able to make the decision and we want to avoid doing that. But otherwise, you know, it sounds to me like there's really kind of a structural systemic issue, right? (laughs) Which is is that we don't, you know, we don't have a, I mean, in listening to that, I almost think, gosh, you almost want to have a waiting period, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because, because often seeing someone a, a few times, right, is reassuring if they're consistent in what they're saying. And it sounds like right now, we certainly don't have it in medicine. We don't have a systematic way that we document people's capacity to do certain things. So it's extremely variable what doctors will document and how. Yeah. And it's also, there's this divide between attorneys who are practicing and professors and academics. I think academics would say, well, everyone should see one attorney and get it vetted by another attorney and they should make sure that everything's consistent. The reality is it is a pain to go find a good attorney and to set the meeting and people don't want to have to deal with more than it's it's already hard for us to get people to understand how important it is to do planning so the reality is if you put too many checks and balances in the system it will just stop people from doing anything and they'll be in a worse situation so the key that, that we talk about is talk to your parents or parents should talk to their kids your grandparents ahead of time as soon as you know there's issues talk to them make notes talk to them about their hopes and their dreams and their wishes And then from there, you have a baseline and everybody's kind of on the same page. And the more you're communicating over time, the less likely you're going to have conflicts where you have this he said, she said issue of, well, did they have capacity there? Did they not? Uh, And and the system's not perfect and it will never be perfect. But if you work with the right team, you can at least maximize the odds that that your your parents' rights will be respected and that the right care will be put into place and the right decisions will be made for them. Right, right. Well, I want to come back to this question of, you know, um, because clearly better preparation ahead of time can prevent or reduce the risk of a lot of these. But to come back to to common issues. So so it sounds like ideally attorneys would check on the capacity and would have the information they need. And often that is not going to to happen. Now, if an older person goes ahead and transacts legal business, under those circumstances and family are upset about it, what are their options for contesting that? Yeah, so that, that comes up a lot. And um, so to contest a, a decision made by someone in their legal documents or really any decision, there's really two key tools that we have. One would be a lack of capacity, which we've talked about a bit. You say, hey, my, my, let's, say, let's say dad makes a decision to, to leave his entire estate to his caregiver or to a new friend that he just met and is cutting out the kids. So the kids might say, well, dad didn't have capacity. He didn't understand what he was doing. He forgot that he had kids. He just didn't have the ability to make a decision. So therefore the decision is null and void. That's one. The other is undue influence. And that's where the family would try to prove that someone was in a, a relationship with the older individual and they took advantage of that. They were maybe in a, there was a power dynamic where they could get this person to make a decision they would not have made without this influence, that it wasn't in their best their best um, interests. Now, it's a tough argument. There are some open and shut cases where there are people who have a, a, a bad actor has a history of manipulating older people and they come in and they just get them to leave all their money to, to this, this new, the gigolo or whatever. Those can be a little more straightforward, but there are legitimate cases. We have cases where uh, we had an older, an older man who he was, he, his kids just weren't involved. They never talked to him. And it was actually through uh, there was a program actually at the, this is in Palo Alto, at the Palo Alto Senior Center, where older individuals who didn't have anyone living with them could get matched with, with younger people, where they would live with the older individual, help out, and get a get room and board in exchange for kind of being supportive for people that needed help. So oh, interesting. And, and, and it's a great, yeah, it's a great program. Of course, you could see it could be, there's a potential for abuse there. But there's this, there's a case where this older, older gentleman had nobody in his life. This younger woman came into his life and she improved it dramatically. She, she invited his friends over for, for dinner parties and things like that. She supported him. She made sure he was safe. His kids were not involved at all. This guy eventually changed his estate plan to leave his house to this younger woman. The family was up in arms later down the road. 
And it did look on the surface like he was being manipulated and doing the wrong thing. But the reality was he had basic capacity. His family wasn't involved. And we have the right to make the decisions we want. So the family tried to challenge it, but they lost because he had capacity. And it was determined this woman was just a companion. She didn't pressure him to do anything. Um, and by the way, even if she had been, it's hard to prove that if it's a longer term relationship. So the bottom line is there are ways families can challenge it. And I don't mean to bring up a case where the family was bad and the, the caregiver was good. There's plenty of cases where a, a caregiver will try to manipulate an older individual. My point is it's a big challenge. I think a lot of people think it's, well, it's clearly this, my dad didn't want to do that. We're just going to get a lawyer and we'll, we'll win. It's, it's a challenging, long battle. And when we're talking about a home worth a million bucks or, or whatever it is, it's a big asset. The person, uh, people lawyer up and if they have good attorneys and if, if things were done properly up front, it can be very hard to challenge. Um, but those are the two tools that we use. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to just mention for the audience in uh, episode 70, we had Candace Heisler who is an attorney who is a prosecutor prosecuting elder abuse cases. And so she was talking a little bit about those kinds of financial exploitation and manipulation ones. And I remember that she said it was partly a question of whether deception had been involved and whether the older person had felt, you know, threatened or was afraid of losing something, right? That if, you know, there are those kinds of power differentials. So if this, you know, young woman was part of this program and you know had not deceived the older man about her intentions or about anything and had not really sort of put him in a position of being afraid to lose her or you know threaten him you know if that's not the case and he just chooses to want to leave his property to her he he has the right to do that people have the right to make choices that make their family members upset. And that's, hey, if for, for family members listening out there, that's a good reason to stay involved with your parents, support them, be there. Because if you're, one, I mean, you'll keep that emotional connection. And two, you can stay on top of things and you can see if there is a, a bad actor trying to get into your parents' life. If you're communicating with them, if you're involved, that is the best way to prevent it. You don't want to have to go to court later to fight it. You right. want to prevent it, head it off ahead of time. Right. So to address the, the common question I get, which is, I think my you know parent made this change and either didn't have capacity or was manipulated by someone. It, it sounds like the answer is they, they are going to have to contest that in court. There's oh, yeah. No, there's no easy way to reverse it. <laughs> no, no easy way to reverse it. I mean, you can talk if your parents still around, you want to talk to them and say, hey, did, do you realize you did this? How do you feel about this? Uh, but, you know, you, kids can unduly influence their parents, too. Of course. So, so it goes both ways. The kids have to be careful too. I mean, it's obviously, there's not the presumption that if assets are going to a kid, that the kid influenced them. Whereas if it's a caregiver, by the way, there is a, a presumption that it was undue influence that the caregiver can overcome. But because that relationship has been taken advantage of so many times historically, that they're actually, that, that would be a situation where the family would be in a, a better position to challenge it. But that being said, they still have to meet a uh, pretty high burden. I would actually, I'd love to check out that, that podcast that you had where you discussed that in more detail. It's a fascinating yeah, yeah. Well, uh, world. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a good episode with uh, Candace Heisler and I'll, it'll be posted in the, the show notes. So again, you know, in terms of this concern that adult children have sometimes about their older parents who let's assume they have good reason to be concerned that the older parent is, you know, mentally impaired right, has been having memory and thinking problems for two years that are slowly getting worse. So they're often quite, quite worried about what that parent might do with the attorney. And I think they're worried that the attorney might not notice or realize that maybe their parent doesn't have capacity. What would you say is the best way for them to bring this to the attorney's attention? Or is there a way that they can bring this to the attorney's attention? And I ask because my advice has always been certainly that they should bring it to the, their parents' physician's attention right? That their physician need, you know, the physician needs to know <laughs> because they may not notice on their own during busy visits. We have tons of research showing that health providers routinely miss signs of, of dementia. We have people who are enrolled in like dementia clinical trials where their provider never documented, their regular provider never documented that they had dementia. So, you know, it's an important issue to, to bring up. And so I, I'm always encouraging them to, to bring it up to the health provider and that you can even send a letter. And if you ask the provider to not mention it to your parent, that's if you've already gotten the feeling that it's going to be very upsetting to your parent. That's a decision that sometimes people can make because the likely benefit of notifying the physician, we presume it, it outweighs the kind of relationship stress 
of pissing off off your parent, but I'm not sure what is the right approach for attorneys. So can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so a lot of it is really, it, it's dicey. And as attorneys, we have very strict code of ethics where if, if the parent is the client, I have a duty of loyalty and confidentiality to the parent. Now, that being said, if a kid sends information, I certainly could look at that, uh, but I, I would have to talk to the parent. I could not withhold anything given from the kids to me if, if I'm working with dad and the daughter says, hey, my dad has some dementia issues, but don't tell him that I said that, I can't do that. If, if he's my client, I have to reveal everything to him. We have to have an open line of communication. And if he tells me, don't tell my daughter X, Y, and Z, I cannot tell the daughter. Um, there's very strict confidentiality and it makes it a challenge. And so there's the bright line legal and ethical rules. And then there's the reality of a situation. If someone is clearly impaired, but has basic capacity, Ideally, they would just give us permission to talk to the kids too. And, and then we can have kind of an open line. They, they can sign a release from say, hey, look, it's okay for you to talk to my son and my daughter. They have my best interest in mind, you know, communicate with them too. In that case, there can be open communication. But if the parent says, hey, I don't want you talking to my son. I don't think, I don't, I don't trust what he's saying. We cannot talk to the son. And there are cases where a child will, in a self-serving way, say, hey, my dad has dementia. I don't think he's making good decisions. He, he cut me out, but he didn't mean to. And there are cases where kids will try to plant that idea in a lawyer's mind to say, oh, no, you should push him to, to give money back to me or something. So we, we always have to approach a situation assuming that the person who's giving us guidance doesn't have the best interests of our client in mind. We know that mo most of the time they do, but that just means we have to be very circumspect Great if we get information from a child, but once we get that information, it's really up to our client, the parent, to determine what we do with that and how much we communicate with the kid um, going forward. So no perfect answer again. Yeah, no, I find that interesting because, well, in medicine, so first of all, there's also an imperative to, you know, do no harm and to sort of serve the best interests of the patient, but certainly historically, providers do not feel they have to disclose everything they know <laughs> yeah. to the patient. Now they would put it in the chart and, and patients have a right to request their chart and most of them won't, right? So actually, and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. I think uh, often providers are not, providers are often not disclosing a dementia diagnosis. <laughs> Even yeah. if sometimes they write it in the chart and they don't, you know, tell the patient or family and that's uh, obviously problematic. But it sounds like what you're saying is that attorneys more strongly feel that they have to disclose that other people have been in touch with them than yeah, uh, health providers might. Yeah, it, it, we just have that such a strict duty of loyalty to our clients. And it can be, and it, our firm is big on multi-generational planning in the sense we love it when we can work with the kids and the parents together sort of as one unit. But both, both sides of that have to be okay with it. They have to give us their explicit permission to say, yes, it's okay to work with my kids. I trust that they, they can help shepherd this process through. The kids have to be okay with the work with the parents as well. But if there's some conflict, and if the parent says, no, don't talk to my kids, we cannot talk to the kids. We cannot listen to the kid calls our office. We can't even reveal to the kid that the parent is a client. Well, well, I think there's a difference <laughs> between when you're allowed to disclose something to someone's adult child and when you're you know, able to hear something and decide what to do with that information, right? Yeah, uh, true, true. But, but we have to be careful if the parent says this person's not allowed to be involved in any way, we actually might not really be able to listen to a kid. We might not be able to take their call. If a, kid, if a parent says, if the parent has basic capacity and they say, do not talk to this person, we will not take their call. We won't look at their message because we were given guidance by the client not to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. It's dicey. Right. Well, so it, it sounds like, you know, in terms of the planning ahead, it would be good for people to, you know, perhaps specify who it is okay for their attorney to be in uh, touch with or to reach out to if they ever had questions or concerns. Absolutely. Yeah. That's getting a release form where people will put the names of people we're allowed to talk to. Another critically important document. And otherwise, it sounds like uh, if adult children have concerns about their older parents' memory or thinking... They could let the attorney know, but they should assume that their parent will find out about that. Yes, absolutely. If, if the parent's our client, we will tell. We have to tell them that, hey, we got a call about your situation. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't go the other way around. If the kid calls to ask us about what we've been doing, we might, again, we, we are not allowed to tell them anything unless we get, are given permission to do so. 
But when you hear those kinds of concerns, do you then sort of ask a few extra questions of the parent to see whether you think there might be an, uh, an actual issue that you should bear in mind if the parent wants to make changes to their legal documents? Oh, absolutely. If, if we get information from a, a good source where it doesn't seem like there's manipulation, yeah, it's, it's a sliding scale. If you know someone presents super well and we have no issue indications for the family there's a problem, you know, we'll still ask questions to make sure they have capacity, but we're not going to be as concerned. But if someone is in that gray area and we, we've received word from the family and maybe, and a lot of times parents are fine with their kids being involved and the kid says, hey, you know, my dad has some memory issues then absolutely we'll be a little bit more circumspect. We'll ask a few more questions to make sure, again, because if, if there's an issue down the road, we might have to go to court to defend our clients' rights to create the documents. So we always have to have notes that we can go back to in that worst case scenario to defend them. So if we have those indications of, of capacity issues, we would ask more questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I certainly make notes on what I thought of somebody's capacity um especially when they're making a choice that I think other people might question. Yes, <laughs> you know? exactly. exactly. Um, I mean, ideally we would do it all the time. That's yep. not necessarily uh, uh, feasible, but as, especially if they're uh, opting for something that I think uh, other people might question or complain about, mm -hmm. then I try to do my due diligence and document that I you know, asked and why I thought they had the, the capacity to make that choice. And so then another like uh, issue that has come up for our members is that they, they say their parent did a durable power of attorney often years ago, and that it names them, the adult child, in case of incapacity, but they don't have a copy. <laughs> um, that the attorney has a copy, and the, you know, the, the parent has now become kind of uh, defensive and protective, which, which I do see happening a certain amount, you know, especially if people are slipping with their memory or thinking, they can become very defensive about it and they can become, uh, I think, understandably worried <laughs> that they're losing control over their life. So, so we have these people saying, well, you know, there is a power of attorney that would allow me to act, except I can't access it because the attorney has it and my parents are, you know, telling them to not give it to me. Any thoughts on, on people's options for that situation? Yeah, that's, that's difficult. Um, because again, as attorneys, we have a, a duty of loyalty to our clients. If our clients say, no, do not release this. We have to get, so if, if and this happens at our firm a lot. In fact, just the other day, I got a request for a copy of someone's power of attorney. We, it was from a third party who, who may have been named in the document, but our first step is contact the client. Uh, did the client give us permission to release it? If they don't give permission, we're not allowed to release the, the document. So now there are the situations if someone's incapacitated in the hospital and they name their son as their first agent, well, then we'll try to work with the son to get a copy. But hopefully the client has a copy in their files so the family knows that they're named because we also don't know if a client's revoked it since they created it. We also don't know what the overall situation is. So another dicey situation, we have to use our judgment in some cases. Sometimes we do have, we just know we have to release a document. If there's a true emergency, someone's in the hospital, they can't speak, and we know they just named their son, yeah, their son will need a copy of that. But um, if it's been years, and we don't know what's going on, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very tricky. And if a family, if a family member can't get a copy, you might have to pursue other other measures like going to court to get a uh, conservatorship, as we call it in California, or guardianship, as it's called in most other states. Mm -hmm. And I guess the court could potentially, uh, you know, request the document then from the attorney. Yes, I believe I believe they could in that situation. We always want to avoid the courts if we can. But yeah, if a parent, if and it's it's pretty rare where a parent is truly in conflict with family members where they just refuse. But you know, there can be paranoia associated with dementia where people are no longer themselves. Oh yes, absolutely. And, yeah, and it's and that's just that's when it gets really hard. But if family members have copies, and we always tell our clients, hey, for the people you name, keep copies of your documents in your files. We will keep backups. But we have to be careful about what we release it. You can give the copies to whoever you want, but we have to, we're, we're here for you. We can only do what you tell us to do. So, you know, sometimes if we know the family members are on the same page, we can be a little bit more flexible there. But if it's someone we don't know, we don't know the situation, you know, we, we might be breaking our, the rules as lawyers if we give it to the wrong, the wrong third party. Mm -hmm, right. So it sounds like, again, you know, advanced preparation, a stitch in nine saves nine is that when these documents are created, Older adults, you know, should be giving copies to the people who are named, ideally. I, ideally, yeah. 
And that if, you know, your parents are doing uh, their legal planning and tell you we named you as the agent, you should ask for a copy. <laughs> you should. And, and if you don't get it, and the, the only caveat there is the parents can always change the documents. And maybe for, for durable power of attorney, usually that's not too controversial to get a copy. Some people don't want to get a copy of their trust, even though if someone's incapacitated and you're named as the successor backup trustee, you will step in while they're alive to manage their major assets. But a lot of people don't want to release that because it shows where their assets are going after they're gone. That's that's a little dice here. Power of attorney is just about taking care of me while I'm alive. So that's a bit less controversial to share with family members or at least let family members know where to find a copy. Say, hey, it's in my desk drawer, the top left drawer. Look for my legal files. It's right there. If you ever need to find it, that's where I keep a copy or I've emailed you a copy. So just let your family members know where they can find a copy or you give them you if if you give the law firm our us as attorneys say it's okay to communicate with them in the future well then we can release the document like if if a family member calls and they're on the release list then we can often do that but if they're not on the release list that's where it's dicey right right Ooh, this just sounds like it's often going to be kind of complicated uh for for people and then i guess again if there's no durable power of attorney at all then families need to think about, I guess, hiring their own attorney and looking into petitioning for, for, for guardianship. That's, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it is complicated, but if you work with someone who's experienced, you know, find an elder law attorney or a firm that really specializes in that, and they can help you navigate it. Uh, we're bringing up, I bring up a lot of edge cases, like the really tough situations. The reality is, you know, 90% of the time, everybody is on the same page. And even if there's some minor issues, we can work through them. But if you work with someone who does this day in, day out, you, you don't want to work with a business law attorney who dabbles in estate planning and elder law because they, they just don't know that. Just like you wouldn't want to work with our firm if you want to create a complicated partnership agreement for an offshore real estate holding company. Go to an attorney that specializes in that. But for these types of issues, you really want to work with somebody who deals with this day in, day out because we recognize the issues ahead of time. And a lot of the solutions are not legal in nature. It's just coordinating with, within a family and communicating. It's multi-generational communication and planning. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like here too, you might be better off with somebody who really has worked with older adults and families, and it's not just an estate and trust person. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who's not just focused on the tax side of things and only dealing with high net worth people. You know, we deal with a lot of high net worth families on the tax side of things, but we also help people of all walks of life, wealthy, not wealthy, in between um, on the elder law side of things and, and dealing with these long-term care and dementia and capacity issues. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, as we wrap it up, maybe you can, uh, we sort of touched on some of these, but maybe we can have you summarize what you recommend older adults and families do earlier on to prevent these common sort of uh, pitfalls or things that can come up later. So can you summarize just like a few sensible recommendations Absolutely. for people who want to do their planning better earlier? Yeah. So the first step is communication. Uh, it's a great excuse to bring your family together to talk about what you want as we get older. We're all going to get older. And the reality is 70% plus of Americans are going to need some form of long-term care, whether you have capacity or not. Every family in America, in one way or another, is going to face long-term care and these sort of elder law issues. Talk about it around the holidays or create a family event or dinner where you just talk about things at first, where, you, where mom and dad can talk about what their hopes are as they get older, if they need care, where do they want to live? Who do they want involved? How do they want to get help? How do they want to work with the family? That's how you start it. The next step is find someone you trust to help you through it, to find an elder law attorney, someone who specializes in this, to make sure you put a, at least a basic estate plan into place with an eye on these long-term care and elder law issues. And what do I mean by that? You need a revocable living trust, to, to govern your finances, to make sure someone can step in and manage your big assets. If you have a house and, and other major bank accounts, you got to have a comprehensive power of attorney for finances. This is that document we've talked so much about where you can empower your loved ones to help you with these very tricky long-term care issues and to navigate the world of Medi-Cal and Medicaid and Medicare and, and nursing home care. So it needs to be a, a power of attorney that really addresses these issues. And you need to create an advanced healthcare directive to empower your loved ones, whoever you trust, to communicate on your behalf in the hospital if you can't do that. Get those into place. Talk to your family about it. 
And ideally, again, I'm, I've, I've published articles about, about this, I've talked about this, multi-generational planning, whenever possible, is key. And by that, I mean, involve your kids in the process. If you're okay with it, your kids can, can be communicating with your attorney as you set up these documents. Uh, as long as everybody's okay with it, we, we have multi-generational meetings all the time where it's mom and dad and their three kids. And we go through things together. And of course, we have one-on-one -on -one meetings to make sure it's okay. But the more you communicate, the more you coordinate ahead of time, if that situation gets tougher later on, everybody understands what's going on. The documents are consistent with what mom and dad's wishes are. And they've communicated their kids informally about what they want to do and what they'd like to have in place. So talking is the first step and it's a tough conversation but it should be one about hopes and dreams rather than fears and sickness and things like that um, and i think that's a good way to, to get the ball to get the ball rolling and then and then work with someone who's really experienced in elder law to help you put that plan into place yeah i love the idea of having these uh these conversations now i find people are often a little stumped as to how to get going or they try and you know somebody doesn't want to talk about it right yeah you know people tell me well my older parents didn't want to talk about it and we also hear from older adults my kids didn't want to you know yeah. i tried to bring this up with my kids they didn't want to talk about it and so i was just wondering does do firms like yours have you know people available to sort of like help a family get this conversation started <laughs> yeah so so that's a that's a tough situation but uh well we offer a lot of free seminars. So you, maybe you look for talks by experts and a lot of times parents will bring their kids to seminars that we give. We give free seminars both to the general public and to clients. We have client programs where we have, I actually yesterday just gave a, a seminar to about 50 of our clients. Uh, it was actually more about tax issues, but a lot of clients brought their kids. Um, we also can set up family meetings. So some attorneys, again, if everybody's on the same page, can have a meeting where the kids come in. Sometimes the kids will get the parents to come to this. It goes both ways. Um, but some, you know, if you're working with an attorney who's experienced in this area, many will offer, again, if the family's okay with it, to do a meeting where the attorney can bring up some of the tough questions and just get the family talking. No right, no right or wrong answer here. And, and I think in your role, Leslie, I'm sure there are situations on the medical side of things where you guys can at least bring up the issues and, and try to get the family to talk. But Oh, we, we, we definitely <laughs> can. But, you know, as I think about this, I feel like there must be, I'm still looking, but I feel like there yeah. must be people who, uh, you know, before you see a highly trained professional who might be fairly expensive. Yeah. Because uh, I know people are often concerned about the expense of an attorney. Absolutely. That there must be uh, people who just have some training in, helping people open up about these conversations. I mean, I know some of our social workers are yeah. able to do it, but I, I think people often at that moment, they seem a little stuck and they're having trouble finding someone to, to, to step in. I mean, yeah. another option is we, you know, geriatric care managers, they've now rebranded as aging life care professionals. Some of them are specifically trained as therapists and I think they can sometimes facilitate those, uh, those conversations as well. For, for the preliminary things. Okay. Well, Mark, this has been so helpful and informative. In closing, do you want to share any last uh, suggestions or recommendations for the audience? Well, I think we, we all should reframe how we think about elder law and long-term care and dementia issues. We should think about it in terms of taking control of your future, empowering your loved ones to help you. It shouldn't, again, be about death and, and what's going to happen when I'm, I can't make decisions for myself and I'm, I'm going to be in this terrible situation. Let's think positively about it. And instead of being fearful about what's going to happen, let's embrace this as a chance to bring our families together. Let's embrace this as a chance to really think long and hard about what we want with our lives and how we want our families involved. And let that be the, the way that we enter this decision-making process and that we start the conversation. And I think that it can be such a, a wonderful process when families are on, on the same page. Uh, and I think that can also spur us to action. But the key is do not wait. If you're thinking about this, I know it's a pain to find the right care manager or the right social worker or the right attorney. But if you wait, it just gets more expensive and it gets harder. You know, we have clients here, we would much rather create some, some basic but very comprehensive documents for you. We make a lot less money on that than if we're going to court and representing you and dealing with a big battle. We don't want to go to court. We want to help you ahead of time. We want to keep you out of those situations. So communicate with your family. Get the ball rolling. 
don't let perfect be the enemy of good too. You're never going to have a perfect plan, but if you have a good guidance, a good counselor, a good good team around you, you can get an excellent plan in place and empower your loved ones to help you when you need it. Yes, yes. Uh, well, I, I, I love those, uh, those thoughts. Those are, are excellent. I will add also that, um, that in doing this, I think you can also spare your family a lot of stress uh, yes. later on. Because sometimes I feel like people, it's not clear to me that they're that motivated by doing it for them, but that um, so many older adults want to help their families. And so that's another sort of thing to think about Absolutely. As, uh, as well. So, well, Mark, thank you. Thank you once again. We'll be sure to post a link where people can learn more about you and the amazing law firm that your, your father founded. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. It's a pleasure to t- take part in this. It was a lot of fun. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.